0: Hey guys, before I share this next conversation, I just wanted to say thank you to all of you who have continued to support the podcast with your monthly donations. And for anyone who also wants to support it, it's really easy. All you do is go to Little known facts and you'll see that there's a contributions page when you look at the home page menu and it explains how to donate. And when I say no donation is too small, I really mean it. Even a dollar a month will make a huge difference in my being able to share these episodes with you every week. So thank you to those who have already given. Thank you in advance to those who might contribute in the future. And without further ado, here's the next episode of Little Known Facts. Enjoy. Little known fact about my guest today, from a very young age, she was aware that she might have what others would call a sixth sense or psychic abilities and how that talent has ended up being so instrumental in her career as voice whisperer to some of the greatest voices of a generation is what we're going to find out today on this episode of Little Known Facts with the glorious Liz Kaplan. Welcome, Liz a-okay a-okay hi liz Kaplan. hi alana how are you i'm good welcome to the podcast i am so thrilled that we finally connected because every single friend that i've had on my show at some point inevitably mentions you as their, um, their savior, emotionally and vocally. And I thought to have an opportunity to talk to the vocal messiah would be really wonderful for my listeners.
1: That's so kind of you to say, and it's so beautiful that people do end up talking about their work with me and my work with them is, has always been to make them the best performer they possibly can be and that takes sometimes just getting to a place of zen for that individual and it's different for every person. So the fact that people mention my name is
0: always an incredible
1: honor. And I never expect it but I'm always thrilled.
0: Well teachers are everything number 1 that is my that is my hashtag that is my bumper sticker that is my life <laughs> motto the names oh. of the people who have mentioned you um either in their award acceptance speeches at the Tonys or on my podcast include, I'm going to do such a truncated list because I want to talk about you, but Nikki James and James Igelhardt and Jelani Aladdin with tears when we talked about you on my podcast, Ben Platt and Beanie Feldstein and Laura Benanti and Hugh Jackman and Andrew Garfield and Stephen Colbert, recording artists like Halsey, Halsey, Randy Newman, James Blunt. It, it's sort of bananas because you're 20 so how you've accomplished all of this i don't know you're a prodigy you're a prodigy thank thank you for granting me those extra 40 years of course you earned, like the um, Asian Academy. for 40 years. <laughs> you are the Benjamin Button of Vocal <gasps> Consultants. It's bananas. So I want to talk a little bit about um I'm not kidding. When Jelani was struggling with Hercules vocally, he talked to me about um the kind of blocks that you unearthed for him so that he was able to get out of his own way. Uh in order to perform what has become one of the most iconic performances on stage for all of us in the last year. Um, I'm like welling up thinking I about know, it. I know, I know. And and I am too. And it's why of all of them, um, you know, I'm sure you have so many stories like that, that it wasn't the note they were trying to reach. It was the heart they were trying to open to the note. So, yes. so your ability to kind of... Um, be the the voice whisperer can you tell me a little bit about your background and how you fell in love with this career sure
1: um well the first thing i'm going to say because it was the first thing that came to my mind was i knew i had i don't want to call them psychic abilities but i knew i had six sense maybe further senses since i was about six years old and I knew, I knew things that I shouldn't have known at that age, but I kept knowing things and I kept feeling things and I kept being able to identify things that a six year old should not be able to identify. But I spent a whole bunch of my time in my early life pushing those knowledges down because it, especially in my family, it was really out of place. Like people couldn't understand why a six-year-old was saying something that a 60-year-old would say. Um, so I kind of pushed it down and it's been my whole life journey, as I will explain, um, to sort of keep opening that up, having no shame about it, having, re- realizing that it's a gift and it's a gift that I shouldn't push away or push down um, or compress or condense. Um and be able to actually feel, here I am, you know, 64 years old, having done this for 42 years. And this September began my 40, 30 year teaching in New York. Um, to be able to really embrace it, love it, cherish it, find it completely still mesmerizing to myself. So where the journey began was I grew up uh, on Long Island, where I actually am talking to you from now. Um, And I started singing when I was, I want to say when I was in nursery school or kindergarten. And I remember um, a time, I think I was still in nursery school, that I got to sing God Bless America in front of an assembly of of parents and teachers. And it wasn't so much the applause I got after singing it. It was the sensation of singing itself that sort of, If if a six-year-old had a rock your world moment, that was a five-year-old at that time. Well, that was it. It was sort of like, oh, what a beautiful sensation to vibrate like this. And then to feel your vibrations connecting with an audience. And I really even then wasn't so concerned about an ego about the reception of my singing. It was more of like, I just communicated something to a room full of people and I think everybody feels good. And that's a sensation that I think I've tried to remember all throughout my teaching career even. Um, but I grew up and uh, I think I was always singing. I was always singing, always in choirs. Um, I started taking voice lessons when I was about 12, I think, or 13, um, after I saw my first Broadway show, which was Fiddler on the Roof. And it was not the original production. But it was probably, like, the second production of it on Broadway. And I happened to have gotten to seeing Bette Midler as Sidle when she was doing Sidle and Fiddler on the Roof. So that was probably around the time that she started doing the bathhouses and singing and all that. But, of course, at, you know, 10 or 11 years old, that was far into my knowledge. But I remember sitting – my father took me to see the show. I remember sitting at the edge of my seat. And they did some sort of spectacular thing for like 1967, which was during Sabbath prayer, they had, they were able to, I don't mean, I don't know how they did it knowing technology for theater as I do now, but they were able to have like four shots of the families singing Sabbath prayer. And I sat at the edge of my seat. I literally had tears streaming down my face and shivers going up and down my spine. And I knew I had changed forever. And that's when I started asking for voice lessons and I realized that this might be something that I could do in some capacity or another. I wasn't like thinking, oh, I want to do that or I want to be a star, but something happened to me that I wanted to keep feeling that feeling. So, um, I did start studying and I will say that I did not have the greatest teachers growing up. And I believe that's what has made me the kind of teacher coach, um, spiritual guide to my students today is that I want I came with such joy and wanting to learn into all of my lessons no matter the brusqueness of my teachers and they kept trying to suck it out of me and some of them actually succeeded in doing so and I ended up I ended up going to college for, for music for I was a voice and theater major and I was feeling like literally getting smaller and smaller in my spirit. And I didn't know what to do about it because I was still young enough not to know how to take control over that. So I became a paralegal in a law firm <laughs> for like a year. And it was like, when you I, started, do. I like you do. And I, that was my first year in New York, 1978. I literally was like, in a year, half a year in, I was like, this is not feeling good, and this is not – this is feeling stale to my spirit that has already been sort of, like, kind of incapacitated. And I remember it being, like, the nine-month mark, and I said, oh, no, no, I cannot do this. Mm -hmm. And what was happening, thank goodness, all along was people from college were coming up to New York for auditions and getting settled, and they kept asking me to coach them. So when I wasn't working full-time, I was was coaching – and I think that's what saved me it really it it took the balance it made a balance happening of like what was something that I really wanted to do versus something that I was just merely doing um and that's what it's that's what it started happening and I actually auditioned for a hot minute um when I first was in new york and I was playing piano bars and music directing and I'm doing all kinds of things all at the same time, kind of with the plan of let's see what will stick and let's see what gives me the most joy and the most satisfaction. And I did that for several years, all at the same time, like a little musical direction, a little playing gigs out and coaching. And at one point, I want to say it was like the three-year mark or four-year mark in where I said, I wonder what would happen if I just dropped the running around to theaters and music directing and stopping playing gigs out because it was so late and people would just not behave well at night. And I wanted to have a discipline of sorts. I said, let me just see what happens if I literally mentally and emotionally decide that this is all I'm going to do. And I was probably about 27, 26, 27 at the time. And that's when I started building my practice. And that's the practice that's been going on all this time.
0: So, where do you think, because everyone, you know, there are so many talented people out in the world, and then there's this thing of, like, luck, that is a, there has to be a connection between what you do and society at large, right, to kind of break through. So, when you look back at, like, this story, and it's hard to pinpoint the moment sometimes, but maybe who was the client, or what was the show where you were like, oh, I've just now people know about this beyond my friend. It's so
1: interesting. I, I always try to remember this and I don't know if I can pinpoint it, but I could date back this. I was thinking about this this morning, knowing we were gonna chat. And I think where it started for me, first of all, I will say for anybody listening that I was like a slow percolation. Like I was like the coffee pot that took like hours to make a really good cup of coffee. But it took me a long time. Like, I would say I kept at it, but it took decades of really being dedicated to staying in one place, mm-hmm. not taking a lot of vacations, because if people needed me or if a production needed me, I really couldn't go away and say to myself, this is what my decision is. Right. Um, but I will say that where it started for me is when really talented people sought me out before everybody knew who they were. And I could I could sort of harken back to um, like the early nineties when I started working with Carrie Butler, Carrie came to me right out of college. I think she, she graduated college, went on a tour for like a year. I think it was like an international tour or a national tour and had come back and sought me out. I don't don't remember how we found each other, but she opened her mouth, and I said, okay, this person, and this is the early 90s, this person is really gifted, and she was an interesting person in her early life because we had, like, a year of lessons. I saw her every single week, and I didn't know if she was really enjoying the lessons because she was so intense. Mm-hmm. So it was like the year mark, and I said to myself, "I'm just going to come out and ask her." And I said, Carrie, um, are you actually um enjoying these lessons?" <laughs> and and she was very intense, and she went, "Oh my God, yes!" And she goes, "She goes, I haven't learned this much or felt this connected to a teacher since my college teacher." And she started telling me about him, and she became animated and animated. And I said, okay, I said, I was just checking. She goes, oh, I'm sorry. She goes, I, I do keep everything really close kind of to the vest. And I just wanted to know for our, you know, feedback, if things were happening the way she had hoped that they would. Um, and I, obviously I know that someone's coming every week for a year so far that yeah. there must be, there must be good news at the end of it. But yeah. it's just the connection for me was important to find her. Um, and then, obviously, things started happening for her really soon after that. Where you know she debuted in the Beast in Toronto, and then she came to New York and did it, and then the rest is Carrie Butler history. So I think that was one thing that kind of saw, fell into my mind this morning about who was it. And then I want to say I, I've been working with music directors who I've come up in my career with. At the same time, they were coming up in their careers, and as a result, they were sending me people from shows they were working on, and I wasn't necessarily on board the show, but I was certainly supporting the actor who may have been having, you know, stamina issues or vocal issues or just needed to get the music into their bodies. Um, so, you know, I have worked with Alex Lacamoire for uh, going on 20-plus years. I, I started working with him back when he was working on Bat Boy.
0: I love that so Oh, my God. I it's miss musical. it.
1: I have to say this. I miss it, too. And I must have seen it 25 times and listened to the recording 800 times. Yeah. Because the recording of Bad Boy was literally like you were seeing it before your very eyes. Like, it's such a gorgeous version of that recording. Um, and it was Andrew Lipa and Alec Blackmore together that made that come to life. But, and then the other person that's very influential in my sort of like getting into, I want to say getting on the path, yes. Stephen Aremas, who I worked with as well, starting way back from his earlier musicals, and certainly when he um, got involved with Wicked, I started helping all the, you know, post-Adina, post-Kristen, all the Elcebos and Belinda that came after that. And he was the person who had been working with, um, on a gas tire, um, in something, I think he made the music directing something at Pittsburgh Civic Light Opera. And I think she was doing Funny Girl. And that's when he had her get in touch with me. And I started working with her. And this was literally as she was leaving SNL. So I started working with Anna. And that was probably in like 2002. So this thing that sort of seems like it has been created has only been, has been like about 18 years of the 42 that I've worked
0: Right, I mean, because you're you're listed as the, I don't know, coach consultant for Book of Mormon and Dear Evan Hansen and Tina, the Tina Turner musical and, and many others. And I know now the film Tick, Tick, Boom and Andrew Garfield's, you know, performance on that. And, and he's been saying, you know, very modestly that if I am a lead in a musical film, Anyone can be <laughs> that, that if they work with Liz Kaplan that, that you know he, he is being modest, but also talking about what it is to have someone be able to make you a Picasso when until then you've been enjoying painting. and so I want to ask you in terms of um, your process. I I know that the magical thing about you is that every friend that I talk to feels like they have an unbelievably unique relationship with you. It's therapist, it's it's vocal coach, it's friend, it's psychic in terms of, you know, you revealing something that I didn't know. I don't know what your little known fact is going to be because the idea of like having Psychic or, or premonitions are sort of the, the weight of that for a young person, especially in a world, you know, where you if you come from a more traditional background, where people are less in tune with, with that kind of magic right. in the world or spirituality right. in the world. Um, If you can talk I mean people by the way go on youtube Liz Kaplan has been very generous it's not like she keeps it a secret there are there are things that she will share with you about physical exercises and diet and just very concrete things that even if you are not in New York City or able to afford a Liz Kaplan she's so generous with information in that way so a I just want to put that in there that um I don't know generous keeps coming to mind as an adjective to describe you Um, But but I imagine over time, right, you take the things that you did not like about your vocal coaches, get rid of those, um, the things that did work for you. but, But there is a Liz Kaplan philosophy to singing. And I wonder if you could talk about how you found that. It really, I feel that as artists that
1: we all get to work amongst, we know we're very sensitive people and we know we deal with senses and more abstracts than concrete so i think in terms of my work the concrete aspect is going to be the vocal exercise itself and the abstract is who is this person i do an incredibly detailed intake each time I meet someone, no matter how much the whole public knows who they are, and I want to know things. I ask questions like, tell me how your body is feeling. Like, tell me about your spinal health. Tell me about your 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 sinuses. And when, you know, when things happen for you, what area does that happen to? Or if you're breathing and you start to sing, where, where are your blocks, basically? Mm-hmm. And when I try to analyze and do a quick diagnosis um, is finding where somebody took a breath in and then they stopped their breath before they went to make a sound, whether it's speaking or singing. And the, the idea is that I have such an arsenal of exercises and information of how I'll deal with that particular thing based on, yes, what I've done in the past, but I often try to shed everything I've done with anyone until I like not have an agenda because it would be like your therapist, you know, your psychotherapist or psychoanalyst having an agenda about what they want to talk about before you come in. It's, it's ridiculous. They've got to be the, the empty slate and you have to let people fill your sort of slate up with their information and then figure out what, how to move through it. So what I, what I try to do is I'll listen to them tell me their stories and tell me, you know, this happened to me at this point and as a result this happened. And what I try to find is what happened compensatorily in their bodies, what happened even compensatorily in their minds, like where their blocks were. I was just having a lesson with somebody of well known, uh, right before we jumped on and we were talking about psychic blocks and how you can make a decision at one point in your life and that block goes up and it takes somebody to be able to identify it to say okay I see what that is where it is and how we can get through it so the way I was describing it to this person is he's had an incredibly illustrious career but what he has I called it it was like a psychic block but it was like mesh so he could see through it and I could see through it, but there was still, it was like a screen door. Yeah. It was a screen door of blockage, which I think, which came far from like there being literal blocks. And so what I try to identify is, okay, I see the block there and I have to figure out why that happened, when it happened. And then the, the fun and the challenge is how to get through it. And a lot of times it's going to be, with breath. It's gonna be body movement to um identify where you get stuck. It's like dropping down the spine and doing a spinal stretch and then feeling as you go down where you're holding on and then equally feeling as you come up where you're holding on. And then I know, okay, oh it's their adrenals are really, really weak. And so they start telling me that they have typical pain in their lower back. And so I go, oh their adrenals are probably depleted. So I have literal movements and stretches that actually address the adrenals and how to sort of reboot them. And this is something that can happen in the course of a session with me and or that they need to use before they go on stage or right before they're about to shoot a scene. And if it's a film or television and trying to let them become me for them for themselves, and give them the power to figure out where psychically they are locking up, and say, "Okay, I can't hold on to this." And go on stage. I need to like get rid of it, drop into my lower back, start breathing a little more deeply, and then with release comes the gift and the art and the anointed um, performer. Which is, you know, I, I I listened to your interview with Jelani and. I was so my heart was so open hearing him because the work we did was to also get him unblock him himself and once he found that space it was like no stopping him and no stopping
0: his freedom so i want to ask you when andrew garfield jokingly or not talks about you and the work you do with him, that gives him the confidence to be in a musical film. Um, Do you think it is true that someone who thinks of themselves as not being able to sing can actually sing? Or is it actually a fact that some people, obviously everyone can sing, but I mean in a way that other people will enjoy hearing. Can anyone learn to sing? I believe that I mean, there's
1: people who literally have committed themselves to saying, I'm tone deaf. Right. Uh, I can't hear a pitch. But I don't believe that. I've always thought about this. I thought about this a lot over all my years. But I think that some people's ears just don't tune in the way they need to for singing. And they shut off sounds and they shut off things they're hearing, which is literally, I mean, this could be easily a psychotherapy session because I feel like people shut themselves down and then they need to be sort of opened up again. So is, is it possible for people who, who can't, who say they can't sing? Can they sing? I think, yes. I think, yes. I think sound and music and vibration have to be introduced to those people. Um, for them to hear and to make sense of, this is a note. You're singing this one. I'm playing this one. Can you hear what this means coming down into that pitch that I was playing? And I've I've worked with people who really truly knew they were tone deaf, or at least they thought they did, and they all they wanted to do was sing. It could have been in like a dinner theater in anywhere'sville, America. And I said, Yeah, I can I can make this happen. I said, but You have to commit to 18 months of never missing a week because this is what it's going to take. And I would do things like play a pitch, pedal it so it's sustained, have him sing the note, and then I'd say, I played this, you sang this, and I played all the half steps going down to the pitch I played. And he was like, oh, and he gradually started hearing it. And for me, it was like, oh, this is so celebratory. I I can't believe that it is true that you can teach somebody who really thought that they could not match Pitch to yeah. match pitch, and he ended up. He ended up going on to like do years and years of like dinner theaters around the country as an ensemble member, and he was thrilled that that's what he accomplished. That's incredible, and that man was Hugh Jackman, my friend. <laughs> um, uh, that is not the ending of that story. No. That be yeah, and and the work and the work with Andrew, uh, it was really interesting because uh, when Lin Manuel called me. I want to say a year and a half or two before this was going to be a thing. And he, he was laying out, he goes, I'm going to direct a new film. I was like, yay. He goes, it's a musical film. I'm like, yay. And I was just yaying a whole lot. And I said, should I reserve my yays for the end? He goes, no, you could gay as we go along. And then he, um, and he said, and I want to uh, have Andrew Garfield play Jonathan in Chick Chick Boom. So I said, oh, that is a thrill. I said, does he, do we know if he sings? And he goes, That's where you come in. (laughs) So basically, yeah, I was like, okay, we don't know. All right. So I started working with Andrew um, right when he was finishing his last month of Angels in America. And he was extremely fatigued, as one might expect. And it was a really gradual process of letting him go through emotionally everything that needed to happen to really make a sound and mm-hmm. hear himself expound with musical notes. And it was joyous because it was challenging, but also he was willing to go there. He was willing to go through this is very painful, yet I know there's a pain and pleasure ratio happening simultaneously. So I'm willing I'm willing to To go through this. So we had the opportunity to work for about a year and a half virtually, um, which obviously the whole world has become, um, before they even started rehearsals for the workshops for it. And miracles happened with him because, you know, I knew he was going to be fine. And Lynn and I talked all along as I was giving him like the updates of what I'm finding from his voice and what he could do. He has so much reserve in his speaking voice and he understands his own vocal production so clearly that I knew it wasn't that far of a connection to get him to be able to make sounds. And you should hear him now. It's, it's phenomenal.
0: It's phenomenal. Can I play a free association game with you? I mean, I'm sure you feel like all of these people are your children and you, you must feel, such incredible pride, right? When these people oh, have that, worked. That is the big story, right? Yes. There. So I'm just going to name some people that we both love dearly, and just kind of talk a little bit about what, what their breakthroughs have meant for you. Okay, I'm going to start with what? such an easy, obvious one, but Ben Platt. Uh...
1: Is it a brief association or can I make a big sentence? If there are no rules.
0: <laughs> I've never done this before, okay. but I just feel like this is a lightning like round. Is
1: it a census association or is it a paragraph association? Um, ben Platt, okay. So Ben and I started working together when he was 17, when he first came to New York to go to Columbia University, which happened very briefly. Um, I saw so him in hair there. Oh, my God. That's amazing. I didn't even get to see that. Um, So I was working. I've been working with Ben as Dear Evan Hansen was being created because I was also teaching Ben Chpasek at the time when he just had. I, I think I taught him the last two years of University of Michigan. So for holidays and summers, he'd come and study with me. And he had told me about this whole story that he were thinking of writing a musical about PS that became Dear Evan Hansen. So when Ben won the Tony for Dear Evan Hansen, after all of our hard work, I just literally, I, I literally was in my seat with all of us with our adrenals on high and just like, what's going to happen. And as soon as they said Ben Platt, I just went, Oh, I went, <laughs> I was able to applaud. I was like with him, he and I really follow, um, I follow his every emotional journey and what he goes through to make possible what we see. So I'm very wrapped up in it and the pride that I had, um, obviously I had pride in him before he won the Tony, but just getting him from the arena stage to second stage to Broadway and working all throughout the whole, you know systems of getting Dear Evan Hansen to Broadway, um, everything was monumental and everything was, I mean, I am feeling so proud of him, but I also know with Ben that he is, he has a confidence in his abilities. So that's not something I'm training in him or training him to have. He already possesses that. What I do is just make what he ends up Putting on stage and now on film. Um, lucky for everybody that there will be a Dear Evan Hansen film. Um, I, 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 I try to make it possible for him to withstand the emotional output along with the vocal output and be able to still, you know, speak afterwards and wake up the next day and be able to speak. So yeah, I mean, everything regarding him is sort of buckets full of pride. Okay, Hugh Jackman. Hugh, again, um, I started working with Hugh uh, with *The Greatest Showman*, and Justin and Benj referred him to me as well because he wanted—they wanted him to have a more pop-oriented sound—and mm-hmm. our relationship just like got off to an amazing start because what he was looking for ultimately was. How to feel complete joy with singing because he wanted that to come across to audiences. Not that this was like an intense thing for him and that his body had a fight to like sing notes. He really wanted to have joy. So the, the work was taking a man who obviously already had astounding resources and sure. just endless, endless talent, um, and just focus his voice in a different way and then also allow him to really have joy and joyousness over a new style of singing for himself. But yeah, I mean, the thing is that all these people that you'll probably mention, they're already so fully realized as humans and as performers, and they've had so many successes leading up to when I got to work with them, that um, what I do is just make sure they can continue doing what they need to do. And do I feel pride? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And James Idleheart? James. Oh, I was so excited that I got to work with him, um, in, with Aladdin, um, because that show was so verbose for him and it was, it was equally as much speaking as it was singing. So what the pitfalls for him and that show were going to be and for us to work on were how to do vocal production for all the rapid speaking that it wouldn't fatigue him so that when he went to sing, he was not going to have anything left because he gave 8,000% of himself every single performance in that show. So So we worked really hard to just get him um, breathing and supporting and making sure that everything that he did was like taking breath, speak the phrase at the end of the period, even though it was like... Get another breath in. And yes. then when he won the Tony, too, I, I well, he won the Tony um, in the same year that somebody else I was working with won a Tony. And I literally was, like, over the moon, over the moon. But also, he worked so
0: very hard and so disciplined. That's incredible. He's really special. Oh. Um, Nikki uh, and James, Let's, I, we could do this all day. We talked about your Let's just talk about Nikki.
1: Well, we refer to each other as, I call her my Nikki, and she refers to me as my Liz. Um, We we got brought together for Book of Mormon by Stephen Remus, and um, we just wanted to make her performance of Nabalungi just so special. And again, with most shows, as you are aware, you don't know what the response is going to be. You're going to do the best you can to put something together, um, but what she did in the simplicity of that role to be sort of the foil was so special and what we got to do was also work on presence and doing minimal work and getting maximal sound Mm -hmm. so but we, we we got very close very quickly because we were able to get some vocal habits that had come into her world from other productions and just move through them and get her to a place where, again, I guess the theme here is the work is really challenging. And yes, it's definitely hard, but the idea of that is that it makes the performer end up not having to work hard when they get on stage. It's just in them and they're able to just emote. And what we get as the audience is like, oh, this looks so much fun.
0: And that is the key there. Well, you say fun and we get the benefit of that. But I also know when I talk to my friends about the diet you have them on and <laughs> all of the things that are taken out of their lives, um, maybe not to a person, but almost to a person. Is that something that yeah. you sort of discovered along the way in terms of dairy, in terms of? Obviously, alcohol and smoking, we all know those are bad ideas, even if you're not a singer Um, (laughs) in terms of doing that a lot.
1: Honestly, honestly, truth be told, this was like a hunt and peck, scratch and sniff scenario that happened as a result of my own experiences with, you know, having, you know, a little excess mucus too much of the time and looking into my own uh, body and my own sort of processing of certain foods and then what would happen when I went to sing. And so it was literally by process of elimination, literally, of saying, these are all the foods that will not get in your way. You will be able to digest them. They will not kick back on you and you will be able to sing and not feel like you have to like super navigate, hyper navigate every note you're singing. Right. And obviously, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, there are some people who just walk by a pizza place and they can't help themselves. Mm -hmm. Um, and then they wonder why they can't sing the next day. Right. Um, so I just try to explain the history of pizza. (laughs) The history of pizza is white flour, tomato sauce, battery acid and cheese, which is dairy, which is gonna create, it takes so long for humans to digest dairy, unless somehow or other, in some other life, they were related by DNA to a cow. Because right. the the enzymes that it takes to break, for humans to break down, you know, cow's milk, takes so much time that then the digestive system is working on triple time and all the blood oxygen is, is working to digest it and then we need that oxygen and blood to like breathe in and sing. So what I try to explain is that your, your stomach, your digestive tract is still doing work and we need that energy for the respiratory system to function at its absolute peak. So
0: how you eat is going to affect how you breathe or not. Right. Okay, I know that you took out and carved this time for me today. I know that your schedule is packed morning, noon, and night. So I'm going to um, let you get back to those incredible students waiting in line for you. so first of all, thank you for being with me today. I could talk to you. What an honor for me. Oh, what an honor for me it is to talk to you. And by the way, I saw you when you were a good man, Charlie
1: Brown. So I know your own beginnings, too. And what a beautiful performance that was.
0: Well, thank you. I wish I had known you then. Um, all right, my love, before you go, is there a little known fact that you can share with um, the world about you? Well, it's going to be, it's going to be a silly fact that
1: I don't know how it's going to go down with people who think that they know me in a certain way, but it's truly a luminous fact. So when I'm teaching, I am absorbing people's energies and taking in their voices and their voices tend to stay with me throughout the course of the day and then the day goes into the evening and I'm actually still thinking about not so much what I said or what I should have said, none of that. I'm always in the moment and being very true and clear and succinct. But I do have the swirl in my psychic brain of people's vocal energies in my head. So at the end of my, my day in the evening, um, to get the quote voices out of my head, um, and not the bad ones, but the good ones, I, I watch a lot of murder shows on television and what that means is that the shows that make me not think of singing, not think of voices, I completely, my brain shuts completely off of anything that came into it during the day. I am just super fond of, and I will say, I will say on the borderline of obsessed with all the murder shows. It could be. Dateline. It could be a Deadline. It could be um, all the repeats of 2020 on OWN, and all those shows where there's like something. There's a it's a murder show. It's literally like watching, you know, Law and Order, and it's it's less formulaic, clearly, than Law and Order, sure. um, which I love too. I love all the Law and Orders, and those still for me are very calming to my ear my ear brain. So I love watching those, and I will tell the silliest juncture of a story where I happen to have been with Ben Platt on the Today Show coaching him really early in the morning as we all know it is to like prepare for being on camera by like 7 or 8 o'clock and I'm preparing him we're we're warming up in a teeny tiny dressing room and we're finishing one little segment of our warm up I'm going to give him time to you know do makeup and hair and I'm going to walk out and then I'm going to go back in a little while I walk out and I see all the hosts of all the murder shows, there was like Josh Mankiewicz and Keith Morrison and Andrea Canning and all of all of them. And and I and I'm thinking, this has got to be too good to be true. I mean, these are all the people I listen to in, in my evenings. And I said, um I was very nervous to see them and I said, uh, are we speaking about murder today? And they went, Yes, it seems it seems like we will. Okay. <laughs> and it was like Apparently, it was the premiere of the new season of Dateline. So all the NBC correspondents were all gathered in the same exact uh, green room that I was waiting for Ben in. So, yeah, so that would be what I would say. It's literally ridiculously said soothing to me because I'm not thinking about anything musical. So it's almost like my little
0: rest. That is incredible. I cannot believe you got to meet them. It was the shared, as my mother would say, yeah. that you would that's be for sure. rewarded for that 4 a.m. wake up to get to the studio I'll for wait waiting it. through it's a window. Oh, no. I, Again. I can't wait to text my husband, to text
1: my husband so you cannot believe who's here at the same time. He's I like, been Paul left.
0: McCartney? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> no. no, not. Oh, oh that's, that's even right. better. Yeah, exactly. Everyone has their better, right? And that was yours. Um, you deserve all the true crime hosts and more. You are um, you are a legend. You are a a global treasure, not just a national treasure. Hey, before I sign off, I just want to tell you guys one more thing. I have a new podcast out. It's called And the Award Goes To, and you can find it on the Broadway Podcast Network or really anywhere you listen to podcasts. It is an incredible journey that I take with 10 Tony winners, where together we listen to their speech that they made the night they won, and then they just take me through their entire Tony experience, how the role came into their lives, what the role meant to them, what the challenges were, how it felt to be nominated and more unbelievable, how it felt to win, and then what it is to wake up the next day after your lifelong dream has happened, Then what do you do? This 10-part limited series is something that started as a love letter to the Tonys when they were canceled this year and just turned into this whole other adventure. I'm so grateful to my guests, all of whom you love as much as I do. So check out and the award goes to, you're really going to enjoy it. Clouds can make the wind blow. Little Known Facts is edited by Nicholas Klar and recorded in New York City.